Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. What I want to do is read the passage that we'll be focused on for the rest of our time today. Verses 16 through 24 is what we'll consider in John chapter 16, verse 16 through 24. And before I read this, um, I will say that the, the, the topic and the point of what we'll be talking about today is a question. And that question is, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? It, there might be many of you in here who have gone through the uh, a curriculum that we've used a lot in different Bible study settings and mentorship settings. It's from the Navigators, but it's called Growing in Christ, or the 2-7 series. And then there's another, there's another pr- curriculum that we use um, where it starts with the first five assurances of the faith. There's 13 chapters, and the first five chapters are the first five assurances. And if you've been with us over the last year and a half or so, when we first started our community groups, the first five weeks of our community groups and the first five discussions that we had in our community groups were the five different assurances. And those five assurances are the assurance of salvation, uh, forgiveness, victory over temptation, assurance of guidance, and the assurance of answered prayer. And if you've gone through this series, you know that the memory verse from that lesson on assurance is John 16, verse 24, where we conclude our time together today. So that is the, the verse that we'll read here in a moment that begs the question of our consideration. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Starting in verse 16, if you'll read along with me, this is Jesus talking on the night that he was betrayed, arrested, taken uh, to the Sanhedrin to stand before the high priest, Caiaphas. Some of the last words that Jesus speaks to his apostles while they were still together. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. But Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be 
full. Now, before we get into the meat of our question, what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? I'd like to just spend a little bit of our time focusing on all of the verses that precede verse 23 and 24. Um, The first thing that we see here, it's repeated three times in this passage. It's said twice by Jesus, and then it's said by the disciples as they're talking amongst themselves, questioning what in the world Jesus meant by these words. And the fact that they're emphasized three times ought to make us consider the gravity and the weight of the significance of these verses. When Jesus says, a little while, and you will see me no longer, he's referring, as many of you already know, he's referring to what's about to happen just in a few hours. After he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and and asks the Lord to remove the cup, but then resolves to say, not by my will, but your will be done. And then he's he's arrested and Peter runs in there, tries to kill one of the guards and cuts off his ear and Jesus speaks, I am he, and everyone falls on the ground and then he picks up the dude's ear and puts it back on his head and then he's like, okay, you can take me now. And then he's led away, arrested by these temple guards that were sent by Caiaphas from the Sanhedrin. We know that that's what Jesus is referring to. In a little while, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die. You're not going to see me anymore. But in a little while after that, you will see me. We know, of course, that he's referring to his resurrection. And I'm sure most of you know this, but maybe some of you don't. But during that period of time between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension, there was about 40 days that went by where Jesus was kind of going around and appearing to his apostles and to various other disciples and people who witnessed him in his resurrected form. We've made this point many times over the last few months, but when we look at Israel's history, it was on the week of Passover when Jesus was crucified. And Passover is obviously the celebration going all the way back in Israel's history to the time when Moses was led by God to go to Egypt to declare to Pharaoh, let my people go. And then they escaped out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and all of the events unfolded where the people grumbled and complained because they were hungry and thirsty and all these miracles happened with water flowing out of a rock and manna coming down from heaven and millions of quail appearing out of nowhere that they could take and eat to get protein. But it was 50 days after Passover in Israel's history when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And so when we read Acts chapter 2 and refer to the day of Pentecost, the reason why all of these Jews who had believed and followed Jesus, the reason why they were gathered waiting to see what was going to happen on Pentecost is because that was a, a very important holiday in Jewish history, the day that they received the law. And so it's no surprise that when they were gathered together in the upper room on that same day of Pentecost was the day when Jesus, as we've been talking about, when he sent the promised Holy Spirit who is a seal of their redemption until the day when all of us require full possession of our inheritance that's in store for us in Christ. So that he's, this is the, these are the events that Jesus is referring to. I know we know these things, but it's important that we as believers remind ourselves of these truths on a daily basis. The gospel has many different components to it. The sinfulness of man, the righteousness of God, impending judgment because of our sinfulness, because of God's righteousness. This is why we focused on last week, the Spirit teaches us all things, the truth about all things pertaining to sin, righteousness, 
and judgment, but we must not leave out, obviously, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. All of these events are incredibly important. And in fact, when we look at all of the ways that Jesus fulfilled all of these, or the way that all of these events unfolded, rather, they are fulfillments of all of these things that took place over centuries and centuries in the Old Testament. And so we can imagine that why Jesus is sharing these words with his apostles, the attitude, the feeling that Jesus brings up that he knows that they are experiencing would be sorrow. We can imagine that these disciples, having seen Jesus do all these incredible miracles, having spoken with the authority that put these Pharisees who were learned and taught and who knew everything that could be known about Judaism, when Jesus would ask these questions, he would stump them and it would silence them. They'd have nothing to say. The authority that he spoke with, the authority that he had to cast demons out of people, the authority that he had over humanity and healing people who had been blind from birth, lame from birth, all of these sorts of ailments and disabilities that Jesus, with a word, was able to fix and make right. So we can imagine with these disciples the sorrow that they felt when he would say things like, I'm about to leave you. And even fast forwarding a few hours, imagine the sorrow that they felt as they watched this powerful and authoritative Savior, the very person who, who Peter said, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And all the apostles were there when, 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 when Jesus' response was, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but this is something that God has, has given to you. This is something that has been revealed to you by God. They were there when he said that, and now they were watching as Jesus was arrested, as he was watching the skin being ripped from his back, the clothes being stripped from his body so that he would be ashamed and naked, being wrongfully accused and condemned, not just to die, but to die the most heinous, torturous, and evil death that had ever been created by the Roman Empire in that time of history, to die on a cross. So you imagine the sorrow that these disciples felt knowing that there would be a loss in their relationship with him. He was no longer with them. The humiliation that they felt as they were watching their master and their Messiah being humiliated. The sorrow that they experienced, uh, the victory that was being displayed, seeming victory that was being displayed and celebrated by all of the enemies, just as we read about here. You will weep, but the world will rejoice. In verse 20. Sorrow because all that they had hoped for, all that they were anticipating, all that they had believed in in the context that they thought that it would manifest was suddenly stripped away from them. Jesus is telling them, this is going to be really, really bad from your perspective. It's going, to, it's going to cause you a lot of sorrow. The crucifixion and the events surrounding it. I argue these, these are the sorts of reasons why Paul says things like we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. He says at the beginning that we, he says to the church in Galatia, actually church and Corinth, we, we aim to preach nothing but Christ crucified. We would, if we wrote that, if I know, I'll say this, if I wrote the letters that Paul wrote, obviously I wouldn't have been under the influence of the Spirit because I wouldn't have wrote what Paul wrote, but I would have probably said we proclaim Christ resurrected. But I think the reason why Paul is always calling believers and why we're called reading the scriptures to always remember his death and to always remember the cross 
is because we, we cannot forget the sorrow that is associated with knowing Jesus Christ. After all, Isaiah chapter 53 calls him a man of sorrows. We just talked about this, that he has finished, he just finished telling the disciples that, look, they persecuted me, they hated me, and because they've hated me and persecuted me, they're going to do the exact same thing to you. And so when, we re, when we're reminded, when we, when we call to remembrance the suffering of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, the humiliation of Jesus Christ, the sorrow that was felt by those apostles when they experienced all the things that their master and Messiah was going through, we should hold those things very highly in our minds. Because what that does in the life of someone who cares about the Lord and what he went through is it makes the joy of the resurrection that much more meaningful. If you'll read again with me, look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Everyone say joy. And most of the women in here, I would imagine, at least half of the women, I don't know, a lot of the women in here understand this next part. You understand verse 21. Um, I don't personally have this experience, but I witnessed it, and I can attest to the fact that this is a great example that Jesus uses in order to help us sort of grasp this idea of sorrow turning into joy in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I remember when Mateo was born, the, I won't, I'll, I'll spare all of the details, but the, the, the moments leading up to when I first saw my little boy for the first time, and I swore for the months before that, like, I'm going to be on the top end encouraging that. Oh, I, don't, I don't know if I can handle that. But as soon as, as soon as the doctor said, oh, my goodness, here he is, I had to look. And it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. But I can attest to this, that those moments leading up to my son's birth, my wife was not in great shape. <laughs> there was even a point where the nurse said, if, Mama, if we don't, if we don't get this baby out, we might have to do a C-section. And Beto looked at me and said, I don't know if I can do this. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, babe. You, you got to do it. I, I can't. I can't will you to do this. You, you, you got it. And it was, it was like a superpower kicked in. And about 10 seconds after she said that, she went, okay. And then Mateo came into the world. And all of that anguish and all of the tears and all of the fear and all of those emotions that my wife and I experienced in that hospital room for about 24 hours turned into like weeping, like happy weeping and ugly sobbing where we were just laughing and crying at the same time when we held our little boy. The joy of him coming into the world. I know so many of you have an experience like that to relate to. And so it's so appropriate that that's the example that Jesus uses to talk about this. A little while, you will see me no more. But then in a little while, you will see me. So then imagine, let's imagine this together again, that the sorrow that these disciples felt after witnessing all of these things. Imagine when they witnessed the resurrected Savior, when the women came to the tomb and an angel told them, like, no, he's not here, he's alive. 
And Peter ran and got the news for himself and he sprinted back and he told all of the other disciples about the good news. And then imagine when Jesus himself appeared and he stood before his apostles, almost like, ha ha, what did I tell you guys? I'm back, baby. Imagine the joy of the resurrection. This is actually a really important theological question. There's a ton of extra biblical content that we have around the events surrounding Jesus' life. Not just Christians, but in fact, other historians from that time who were writing about the events surrounding this person, Jesus Christ, and, and, and following all of his disciples and writing things and, that took place. And there's a lot of document evidence out there that talks about the scattering of the apostles after Jesus' crucifixion. And there's a ton of writings out there about that first century church that started a couple of months after the scattering. And so there's, a, there's an important apologetical question that we need to ask. What happened between the scattering and the incredible revival growth of the church? Like what led to Peter denying Jesus 50 days earlier to him 50 days later preaching a message to 3,000 people and they all get saved. I mean, keep reading with me here in, in, in John chapter 16, verse 23. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you, oh, I'm sorry, verse, verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Man, just a casual reading of church history. The apostles, every single one of them, except for John, were martyred for the faith. And that wasn't because they didn't try to martyr John. They, they ultimately were like, man, we can't kill this guy. Let's just put him on Patmos. And we learned the reason why they couldn't kill him, because he, we still needed to have the last, the, 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 the last part of our finished canon of Scripture in the book of Revelation. What led to these men being ashamed and scattering to only a few weeks later being willing to die and declaring with a fiery passion the truths of the gospel with a joy that could not be replaced by anything else. But we know, those of us who are in Christ, that the only reasonable explanation is in fact the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles over a couple pages to John chapter 20. We read this promise in, in John 16, 22, that no one will replace, no one will be able to steal your joy. We know that the context that Jesus said that was to the apostles who would see him die, but then see him resurrected. But let's not get this mistaken. This promise extends to us. Read with me in John chapter 20 about Thomas, verse 24 and on. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called twin, was not with him. With, with them. When Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Okay, Thomas. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came anyways and stood among, I added anyways, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. But listen, this is for us. This is for us. 
Jesus said to Thomas, to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. I submit this truth to us. There is nothing in the entire world in and of itself that is powerful enough to overrule the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. And I know that in a room with this many people, if we were to to take a list of all of the hard things that we've had to go through, we would have some incredibly hard things. And I've always said this, I've learned this from experience, but everybody's hard stuff is hard stuff. We could compare and say, well, that person's stuff is harder than this person's stuff. But, but all of our hard stuff is hard stuff. And so the most horrible, the most depressing, the worst things that we could even imagine that have happened to people in this world, those things in and of themselves do not contain the power to overrule the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what these verses teach us. The worst thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind is God unrighteously dying. What I mean by unrighteously is that he didn't deserve that. There's nothing that he did that put him in the place to be like, yeah, well, that's what he earned or deserves is to die. No, he was perfect. That is the worst thing that has happened in the history of mankind. And Jesus sums it up to a little bump in the road on the way to the resurrection. In a little while, you won't see me, but in a little while, you will see me. And I'm not diminishing, I'm not diminishing the crucifixion. I'm just trying to hear Jesus and how he puts it into context for us, that even that was not enough to take away the joy that is experienced when we know who Jesus is. So as we imagine the sorrow and then the joy that these disciples went through, I think a a foundational truth of, of, of utmost importance, the first truth for us to consider of really what it means to pray in Jesus' name is to trust in the authority of who Jesus is. In Colossians chapter 1, we read this, verse 15 through 17. He is the image, this is Paul writing about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And it's a misnomer. People will take that passage and say, oh, okay, so Jesus is created then. No, Jesus has always been. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word is God. Jesus is not a created being. He is God and he has always been. This is a reference to when he became a man. And we know that he is also not the first person to ever be born, but rather when God took on flesh and Jesus was was living on the earth, when God sent his only son to take on flesh, to put on a human form, Jesus became the preeminent man, the first and foremost, the, the most important man who has ever existed in the history of mankind the firstborn among all of those who have been created. And it's, it's for, by him, all things were created. So that obviously wipes away the whole, he's created. No, like, how could, how could he be responsible for himself being created if this verse says that all things were created through him? <laughs> it's ridiculous. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and here it is, and in him, all things are held together. 
So as we imagine the feelings of sorrow and the feelings of joy that these disciples felt, we need to imagine, not just imagine, but believe this, that Jesus in and of himself is authoritative. He is over all. He is before all. He is preeminent. And so to pray in Jesus' name, it starts by first thinking about Jesus in a proper way. Thinking about who Jesus is with a proper mind, who he is. Um, and also to help wrap our minds around the idea of what it means to pray in Jesus' name, I want to take a, a moment just to talk about uh, hindrances to answered prayer. Uh, we talked about these when we went through our assurance series about a year, a little over a year ago. But I think it's incredibly necessary for us to really focus on, if we're going to pray in Jesus' name, it, it'd, be, it'd be wise for us to consider what are some of the common hindrances to answered prayer. And the first one, and the most obvious one, is sin. Everyone say sin. Sin. So sin, I talked about this last Saturday night, so I didn't say it in this ser- ser- uh, service. Mike preached here last week. But sin, maybe many of you know this, the word sin is hamartia in Greek, and what that word literally means is to miss the mark. And in, in Hebrews 7.25, it says that Jesus lives to make intercession. That word intercession is a two-part word, but the second word is tugano, which means to obtain by hitting the mark. And so this is interesting. When Jesus, when he, he, he sits at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for all of his saints day and night, he is, he is literally doing that which is perfect. He is hitting, he is obtaining the mark by hitting it perfectly. You're like, what are you talking about here? Okay, hamartia, sin, to miss the mark. So to be without sin, to not be guilty of hamartia would be, you know, if you had like a quiver full of arrows, this is the idea of what this word paints. If there's a bullseye like over on that wall, like let's say the middle of the clock over there that I know many of you are looking at right now. To, to gano, to obtain by hitting the mark, to not sin would be to hit the center, of the, the center of the bullseye, right at the center point of the center of the bullseye. And then take another arrow and then shoot that arrow and it perfectly splits that arrow in half and then it hits the same point. And then it'd be every action that we ever commit to be without sin would be to send every single arrow perfectly splitting each arrow and hitting the middle of the mark every single time. So it's not just being bad. It's not being perfect in everything. And that's who Jesus is. We could never do that. And so we know that sin, if, if it's sin that separates us, all of us are guilty of this. So a, a bottom line, maybe some of you are like, man, the Lord doesn't hear my prayers. Well, a, a foundational question for me to ask you is, well, are you a child of God? There's this horribly wrong statement that's been made throughout the centuries, and I don't, maybe a lot of you profess this. It's not true, okay? We're all God's children. That's just not true. It's not. We're all God's creations. But John 1.12 makes it abundantly clear that those who believe in him, he has given them the right to become children of God. So if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're like, Lord, how do I pray to you? Well, the, the most foundational thing that we see in the Lord's Prayer, what's the first word in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus t- teaches us how to pray? He says, Father. And he puts an article on it saying, our father. So it's our father. 
if you can't call God Father, then he's not listening to, the, to your prayer. The only prayer that God will ever hear from someone who's not saved is the prayer that somebody prays to be saved. <laughs> Lord, I need you. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the resurrection. I, I know that I can't do this on my own, and I, and I want to live for you. God hears that prayer, but every other prayer he can't hear because you're not his child. But as it stands, you're here today, and if that's not the case in your life, you're here today, you're hearing the gospel, in a moment you can say, I believe. You can submit your life to the Lord, and you can start to live for him, and your prayers will be heard. Um, as we read from, from uh, Psalm 66 earlier, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says that your iniquities have created a separation between the Lord your God so that he cannot hear you. For those of us who are believers, when we cherish sin in our hearts, when we, when we go and we just, we don't really care to reconcile with the people in our lives, we don't really care to make sure that we're, you know, confessing our sin to the Lord, but then we make all these appeals to the Lord, our prayers are hindered. Sorry, raise your hand in here if you are a husband. Raise your hand to all my husbands, raise your hand. Okay, cool. So there's a lot of us in here are husbands. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, now all of, all of the women in here, all of my wives, raise your hand if you are a wife. Cool. So for most of us, this applies. The first six verses are an address that's given to wives on how they ought to live. And then in verse 7, he switches gears to address the husbands. And he says, husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way, honoring them as the weaker vessel as a co-heir in Christ, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And I would, I would argue that that, so that your prayers won't be hindered, extends also to the wives not fulfilling their role as a wife and the husbands not fulfilling their roles as a husband. If you're not living with your wife in an understanding way, and wives, if you aren't living with your husbands in the way that God's called you to, if y'all aren't reconciled in your marriage and trying to honor the Lord in your marriage, that is something that hinders your prayers, just for an example. So every other sin that we read about in Scripture, if we don't confess those to the Lord, and if we just continue to, to operate and to live without actually addressing those in His presence, our prayers are hindered. The second thing is ignorance to God's Word. We talked about this a couple of, that's another thing that hinders our prayers. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but in John 15, 7, in the, the, the famous metaphor of the vine and the branches, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Everyone say abide. Thank you. I'm making sure you're paying attention. If, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask anything that you wish and it will be done. Another important uh, passage about God's word and again, if, if, we're not, if we're ignorant to God's word and we're, and we're praying for things and we're not getting what it is that we're praying for, it's possible that with a good heart and the right attitude, you're praying for something, but it's completely going against what the word of God says. And so you're frustrated because you're not getting that thing. But God's like, well, read your word. Read the Bible. You'll know what you ought to pray for. Another thing that the word says, another uh, hindrance to prayer is found in James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So we know, I, mean, I remember when I was a, a kid and I, 
man, like the, the whole idea of praying in Jesus' name. I remember being like a real little kid and thinking like, man, that's, that's interesting. So if I pray, I can ask anything and I'll get it. I, I, I used to love Legos when I was a little kid. And I, I remember like, I'd be sitting in my room and I'd be like, okay, Lord, I, I want like a big, like a big dinosaur Lego set with like a million pieces of Legos in it. And, in Jesus' name. Ah, didn't work. Right? And, and, I, and I know that for many of us, not all of us, we've prayed for a lot more serious things than Legos with, with a heart that thinks that this would be best, God. I know better. This, this would be the best thing if you would do this, Lord. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. And maybe we're even praying for, for, for good things, but it's with a heart that it doesn't have the proper motivation. That might be a hindrance in your prayer life. And we'll talk about proper motivation here in, in, in a second. The last thing um, that is a hindrance to prayer that we'll consider, certainly there are more considerations. Um, in our young, young marrieds class, we've been going through the, the gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 11, Verse 5 to 13, Jesus says these words. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to, who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or persistence, persistence he will rise and will give him whatever he needs. So I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find it. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. This is a funny story that Jesus is telling here, I think. Like if, 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 if there's a, someone who comes in from out of town, and they're like, oh man, I'm really hungry. It's midnight. I'm going to go to my neighbor's house. We're pretty good friends. And they just start like beating on your door. The reason why you get up and go, what? What do you want? I'll give it, I'll give it to you is not just because they're your friend, it's because they're being annoying and persistent and they don't stop knocking on your door. Okay, here, take your loaf of bread. Just leave me alone. It's midnight. Everyone's asleep. Oh my goodness. And not to mischaracterize this passage, what, it, what this verse isn't saying is that how, is that that's how God is towards us at all. That's not, God's not annoyed by us when we're continuing to pray and ask for things. So we go back to the whole motivation thing. I know for me in my life, there's times when I think I'm praying for this thing and I know that this would be best. I'm just, you know, I have, I, have, I have a very full perspective about all of these things. And I know that as I'm praying for this, this would be the best way for you to answer it, Lord. Why are you not answering it? But as it stands, my fist-sized brain doesn't know what is best. And so because of my improper motivation, I don't have what it is that I'm asking for. But even more importantly than that, God might be trying to teach me this fourth thing that's a hindrance to prayer. We need to be persistent in our prayer lives. We need to continue to labor and persevere when we're praying for things. I mean, for one reason, most good gifts can't be given quickly. For example, if you're praying for the Lord to mature you spiritually, that's not something that's just going to be granted to you overnight. That takes time for us to grow in the knowledge of who the Lord is and to walk more and more and more like Jesus. Another idea is God knows best when to give 
his gifts. All I have to do is think about Abraham and Sarah. Abraham wanted a son. After all, he was given a promise about many nations, and he was getting old, really old, like really old. And it wasn't until they were almost 100 that God fulfilled the promise of the son that came. God knew when the best time to give that gift was. So we need to believe that as well, that even though it seems like this would be better if it went the way that I was hoping that it would go, in God's economy, he knows even better. And not just even better, he knows perfectly. In fact, his knowability of it compared to ours makes us look like our knowability doesn't even exist. It's not even a blip on the scale. Thirdly, much is learned just in the process of waiting. Last night we sang this song, um, I think it's called I Will Wait, I don't know, but I will wait for you, I will wait for you. We sing a lot, I've made this point before, we sing a lot of songs where you should really be careful about the lyrics that you're singing. Because all you have to do is turn and be like, okay, I'm going to hold you to that, buddy. And then that song, I counted it up one time when I, I preached and I elected that song. I think that I will wait for you, that, that lyric in that song is said like 60 times or something like that. <laughs> but it's in the process of waiting and asking that we are built up, that we're matured, that we learn perseverance, that we learn so many other things. And in taking this passage from Luke, if we continue reading, he says, ask, seek, and knock. Something that Mike's taught me about this passage that's true is this is written as an imperative. It's a command, do these things. But it's written in the active, meaning that it's really the better way of thinking about it is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. I would even, I would even argue that the best way of thinking about it is don't stop asking, don't stop seeking, don't stop knocking. Because the Lord's teaching us something. 2 Peter 3, 9, we should not count slowness as the world counts it, for God is not slow in fulfilling his promises. God is patient. He's not slow, he's patient. And he's perfect in his execution. And even if we don't feel like it, all we need to do is read the word of God and then, and then consider the things that he's already done for us and then fall in line and believe with joy. And so by extension, if praying in the name of Jesus means to not sin, it would mean that when we pray in Jesus' name, remember, one, we believe in his authority, we trust, we, we think with a proper mind of who Jesus is, and then we walk lives that are worthy of the manner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that none of us will do this perfectly, so this is a, this is a lifestyle of repentance. It's a lifestyle of confession. It's a lifestyle where we're constantly saying, man, I messed up. I'm sorry, Lord. I appeal to your mercy and grace. Thank you. Help me. And then we get up. Though we, though we fall six times, the righteous gets up the seventh time. We get up, and then we keep on going with the help of the Holy Spirit and with each other. So if ignorance to God's word is something that hinders our prayers, what's, what's something that boosts our prayers? The knowledge of God's word. Thank you, Kathleen. The knowledge of God's word. To pray in Jesus' name, a huge part of this is that we pray according to the word of God. Jesus read for us earlier from 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 through 15, and I just want to look at verse 13 and 14. But John writes, and I will do whatever you ask 
in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. That's, well, that, sorry, that's from, that's from John 14. First uh, John 5, 14 and 15, my fault. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, everyone say according to his will. Nice, that was a good one. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Um, about two months ago, we talked about the will of God. Mike taught us about the will of God. We focused on that topic. We, men, we went on the men's retreat a couple of months ago. But the will of God can be summed up with God's sovereign will, things that have happened or will happen, the way that they happen, that's what God intended. That's, that's his sovereign will. And then God's moral will. That is God's law, what God's, what God's word tells us to do. So the more familiar that we are with God's word, the more familiar that we are with God's will. And when we're more familiar with God's word and his will, that will fuel us to say prayers that are more in line with what his will is. And then that gives us confidence to know that when we ask according to what the word of God says, we'll know that that's going to happen. The last important truth, um, actually there's two. I, I, I can't forget about this one. In Luke 11, um, if you held your places over there, great. If not, I'll read this for us. So ask, seek, and knock. He finishes with another example. He says, what father, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Um, Matt, in Matthew, Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, we'll give him a, a snake or a stone. So Jesus said this multiple times when he was in his ministry. There's only two instances where it's recorded in Luke 11 and Matthew chapter 7, but he probably said it a lot in his ministry. He probably taught this truth to ask and seek and knock. And man, if, if there's heavenly fathers that know how to give good gifts, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father, listen to this, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I think what what Jesus is calling us to consider here is not like, oh man, I have to keep asking and asking and asking and asking and then maybe, just maybe one day, Jesus will give me his Holy Spirit. Oh, I really hope that'll happen for me. No, we know that, that the, the Holy Spirit is a seal. He's a guarantee, Ephesians chapter one, of our inheritance until the day that we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit is, Pastor Mike has said this before, he's like an engagement ring. When, when we're saved, Jesus gives us his spirit and he's a promise for when Jesus returns, he's a promise for us that we will inherit eternal life um, fully when we see him and meet him in glory. But when he says this, this uh, the Father will give his Holy Spirit, I think the truth that Jesus is saying here, it draws our attention to consider Ephesians chapter 5. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled. Everyone say be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. When we live for the Lord, when we live in his presence, when we seek him in his word, he will fill us. There's a big difference between the giving of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I think what it means to pray in Jesus' name, based off of Luke 11, what Jesus is teaching us, is that it means to walk in the Spirit, to operate in a manner where we're allowing the Spirit to fill us as we're in his word, as we live in this earth. And, and, and just as we made this point a second ago, if we know God's will and, we're, and, and, and we're, we're operating in accordance to what his word says, that will certainly influence the kind of prayers 
that we're praying. The last thing, and this is John 14. I, I accidentally started reading this passage earlier. It's John 14, 13, and 14. Jesus says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. The last thing that it means to pray in Jesus' name is it means that we're praying for things that will honor and glorify God. That will honor and glorify Jesus, and by extension, those things will honor and will glorify God. Saying in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer is not a magic formula. If what we ask for or say in prayer is not for God's glory and according to his will, saying in Jesus' name doesn't mean anything. Genuinely praying in Jesus' name means praying for things that would bring glory to him. Not attaching certain words or expectations or motives outside of that. It's not the words in the prayer that matter, but the purpose behind the prayer. Praying in Jesus' name means standing in agreement with his will and desiring above all else for him to be glorified. So, for example, if you truly desire to see your prayer life go to that next level, if, if we truly want to see the Lord meet us in ways that, that we've never experienced him before and to see him answer prayers in a way that fuels our faith and emboldens us and, and impassions us to continue to operate, this is a great example. Let's say uh, there's someone in your life that you want to know Jesus. Is that something that aligns with the heart of God? Well, yeah, if you're not ignorant to God's word, you know that 2 Peter chapter 3, we already talked about this, verse 9, God is not slow in fulfilling his promise. That's verse 8, for, for we should not count slowness as the world does, for God is patient, not wishing that anyone would perish, but that all would reach repentance. We know that not everyone would reach repentance, but God has a heart that does not delight in anyone perishing, and he loves it when people are saved. Therefore, we should too. And so if there's people in our lives and, and we're like, God, I don't, is it your will that I minister to them? Well, yes, that is God's will. Lord, give me an opportunity to minister to the, the gospel to someone. God's not going to be like, ah, sorry, I'm not going to answer that one. You will not have an opportunity to minister the gospel to this person. I reject that. God's word rejects that. If you have a desire to see people in your life, and I, I, I appeal all, for all of us, me and all of us, that we start to foster in our hearts and minds by the help of the Spirit a love for the people that God has put in our lives. First and foremost, a love for each other so that the church looks like the church in the world. And then when we go into our different spheres, when you're operating in a place where you have family members who don't know the Lord, maybe your children, maybe your parents, maybe cousins or uncles, co-workers, a lot of you are students, your classmates, a lot of you are athletes, the people that are on your teams, your coaches, all of these people, ask the Lord to give you a heart, a heart like Nehemiah who, who, who his heart broke and he wept over the, the people of Israel because they weren't walking with the Lord. And then say, God, please give me an opportunity and, and continue to read the word and open it up and, and let the spirit fill you and saturate all of your thoughts and, and develop and foster a love for God's word that is beyond comparison to anything else in your life. And then when you go into your context and you've prayed these things and you've hoped for these things, the Lord will give you opportunities to minister to these people. And when, and, and when these people see the Lord in you, and they see your heart for the Lord, 
Some of them are going to believe. And then ask God, God, give me an opportunity to disciple. Is that your will, God, that I make disciples of all nations and that I baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Is it your will that I teach them everything that you commanded me? Yes. See, the reason this truth that we said as we finish our time, this truth that there's nothing that exists in this whole world that in and it of itself can overrule the joy that's found in Christ, it seems contradictory to many of the experiences that we have. Okay, Drew, good truth. The joy found in Christ isn't overruled by things in the world. Well, I've experienced a lot of joylessness in this world. This is what I submit to all of us, to me and to all of us sitting in here, is that when that's our experience, it's because we're not operating under the influence and help of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I say there's nothing in, in this world that in it of itself. We tend to give power to things that inherently have no power over anything that comes from God. But when we operate believing in God's word, loving God's word, growing in the knowledge of who he is, and trusting in Jesus' name and in Jesus' name alone, we'll start to see prayers answered in a way that will fuel our faith. We'll be able to say together, man, Lord, your kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Well, Lord, we do pray in Jesus' name. We pray that, that you would convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Holy Spirit, stimulate our hearts and minds to love your word or to ask for the right motives to surrender and submit that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit. Give us persistence and diligence that we would continue seeking, asking, and knocking. And Lord, help us to pray emboldened prayers according to your will and for your glory, God, trusting in who you are. We praise you and we love you in Jesus' name.